Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, the Supreme Court began its fall term last week, and even though Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed at the start of last year's court term, this year's Supreme's decisions will be worse, a lot worse. Eli Mistal will explain why. He's now a contributing writer for the nation. Also, a new episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and Little Eric. This week, who's helping Dad fight impeachment? Amy Willens has our story. But first, Tuesday night, we watch the Democratic debate. Trump Watch starts right now. Tuesday night, we watched the Democratic debate, 12 candidates for, was it three hours, with questions from CNN and the New York Times. For comment, we turned to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author most recently of the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. Such a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, Bernie was great on Tuesday night, sharp, energetic, but also relaxed and even sometimes funny. All those things. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I, I mean, I, my sense is that you begin at exactly the point where you should begin. Because, of course, if you're writing the history of this time, you know, years from now, uh, what would the drama of this debate be? It, it, it is, of course, that a guy who, you know, during the course of this last year has at some points been at the top of the polls, was down a little bit in the polls, uh, and then experienced a heart attack, uh, and two weeks later, you've got a debate. It's his first major, you know, step back onto the national stage. He's done some announcements and videos, but this is the big one, and it's a three-hour debate. You know, you could you could even see the drama of it, right? Yeah. You know, and uh, and it was for Sanders, kind of. Uh, I would say, to, not to no hyperbole here knocked it out of the park yeah um you know he he got there uh he came on stage uh very good response blah 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 that's to be expected treated well by the other candidates you know there's a there's a certain uh feel-good element here of of the candidate who got knocked down a little coming back in but what's significant about sanders is and it's something that Historically, sometimes it's used as a criticism. Here, in this case, it becomes uh, a compliment, even a great strength. Uh, he's right back on message, yeah. going right to the heart of the matter, and to my view, um, seizing moments. Not obviously not nervous about it. Not trying to you know use every opportunity to to prove a point, but seizing moments when they occur and using them really well uh the the high point for him in my view came pretty much you know midway uh through the debate toward the end of the second hour um there was a a good discussion uh, in this very unfocused kind of chaotic debate there was a good discussion about the opioid crisis and about uh drug laws drug war uh some intersections as regards to pharmaceutical companies but, you know, some good discussion taking place. And uh, Andrew Yang 
doing some very good comments. Uh, Cory Booker saying something, you know, good people talking, right? But Sanders was left out of it. And um, as they're coming to the close, they're about to pivot into the next round of questioning. Aaron Burnett's going to uh, ask the questions. And, uh, and Sanders says, you know, yeah, I'd like to get a piece of that. I'd like to, I'd like to say something there. And, um, and Aaron Burnett's like, no, 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 I want to go on to the next topic. We've got to move along. And in, this, in that debate, I've got to tell you, every opportunity the moderators had to interrupt any interesting discussion, they grabbed it. Oh, uh, yeah, it was, ter- uh, it was yeah, terrible. 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 Terrible interruptions throughout the debate. But, so Burnett's trying to push it forward. But Sanders held his ground. Not in, you know, some sort of aggressive way, but he said, no, I'd really like to answer this question. And she said, well, no, I, I want to get on to talking about the candidate's health care or health conditions and things like this and age and stuff like that. And Sanders shoots back and says, paraphrasing here, you know, I'm feeling great. I'm in good health. I'd really like to answer this question. Mm-hmm. But still pushing, right? Mm-hmm. And Cory Booker, who is, you know, just a good guy, right? He's, He's the good guy of the whole debate. You know, jumps in and says, yeah, I'd like to mention that, you know, Bernie's, you know, for decriminalizing drugs or marijuana. Medical, he's he's on, for medical marijuana. Medical marijuana. And, and Bernie, um, not missing a beat, goes, or it, it was Booker says, he supports medical marijuana. Bernie, not missing a beat, says, I do, but I'm not on it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Crowd breaks out in just good laughter, healthy laughter. Um, in a way, it breaks attention. Yeah. And, um, and Burnett recognizes it. She laughs herself, to her immense credit, and says, okay, I really want to ask my question, but go ahead, you know, take your piece of this. <laughs> and then, and that's kind of sort of a long setup, but then Sanders delivers a scorching critique of the pharmaceutical companies uh, which he then connects to unfettered capitalism, like a critique of capitalism, and then brings it into concerns about fossil fuel companies and, and other corporations. I mean, it's a, it was a very effective minute and a half, right? Yeah. And then he's got his piece. He said what he wanted to say, and it was worthwhile. It was a good addition to the debate. Burnett then comes back with her question about health and about his heart attack and the things that have happened. Sanders deals with it in the most fascinating of ways. He basically, instead of, you know, belaboring it at, at great length, he acknowledges it. He, he thanks the other candidates and other people for being, you know, so supportive and kind and how much he valued all the concern he's heard. And then he does, he announces a rally and you're like, where is this coming from? You know, we're going to have a rally in Queens in New York on Saturday. And here's the, the website. And you're like, wow, that's a, this is a candidate is really going for it here. But of course the genius of that, and this is, yeah. this is really strategic. Yeah. What is, what is this rally in Queens? <laughs> Where who represents Queens in the U.S. House of Representatives? My goodness, let me think. I know they have a number of representatives, but one of them is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes. And, of course, even before the debate is done, there's this kind of electricity. It actually kind of moves things beyond the debate. And again, I say that's sort of the political genius of it. You, you move things beyond the debate, where Sanders had a fine, effective performance, 
to this discussion. Well, what's, who's this special guest at this rally? Of course, it comes out very quickly that it's going to be AOC. And then within minutes, uh, Ilhan Omar uh, comes out with an endorsement of Bernie Sanders. And then the word spreads that Rashida Tlaib, another member of the squad, these very sought-after endorsements. Uh, And so at the end of the night, both in the debate and sort of in the extension from it, Sanders didn't just come back into the campaign. He came back, you know, sort of thunderously. So I think there's a drama there. If we were writing our chapter of the book, um, no matter how the book turns out, that's that's sort of the heart and soul story of it. Uh, I couldn't agree more. So while Bernie looked great, Biden did not look good. He continues to sink, and really not because he was under attack. I think everybody sensed that uh, he's he's you know dropping and you know not really up to this. And his weakness may has made the other let's call them moderates think they may now have a chance. And so the lead for the mainstream media after Tuesday night's debate was Warren faces a barrage of criticism. And indeed, the lines were drawn pretty sharply between the progressive candidates and the ones we're calling the moderates. And that indeed is the current debate inside the Democratic Party. Yeah, and your, your point is very well taken. Of course, we should note that that a lot of our national media would never acknowledge that Bernie Sanders had a good debate. Yeah. Right? I mean, that would be beyond their realm of possibility. Yeah. Um, but, uh, although in fairness, uh, actually even because it went so well for Sanders last night that you did even hear some of the pundits saying he had a very good night. But, uh, you know, of course, they, the way the debates are covered, um, the punditocracy or whatever we want to call it, comes toward a debate um, with a set of expectations, and it's very hard for them to separate from their expectations, right? They, yeah. Yeah, they and so this was going to be the Elizabeth Warren night, um, no matter what happened. And in fact, it's credible. There, there were candidates who went after her. I would quibble only with one thing in your when you're saying that it was the moderates. I think pretty much everybody, you know, took a shot at her yeah. at, one, at one time or another, with the possible exception of, of Bernie Sanders. But even he, um, when she was talking about Medicare for all, sort of jumped in and, and did his I wrote the damn bill uh, line, yeah. which sort of peels a little bit of it back toward him. Yeah. And what I would say is that I think this was a rough debate for Warren. She came out ultimately fine. I mean, I don't think she was particularly harmed, but some alarm bells went off. And I think there was a measure of vulnerability there that that her campaign, which I happen to think is a very well-run campaign, is going to need to note. Um, when she was challenged on issues, she didn't always seem to have the strongest answer. And at times, she seemed uh, to default to her plans, and she famously has a plan for everything, default to her plans rather than, you know, kind of hit that strong answer that you need in a debate setting. And And I do think there's going to have to be some consideration of that. Yeah, well, the the sharks are definitely circling around Medicare for all and focusing on how to pay for it. Bernie is quite forthright. He said that uh, his, his plan, which she supports... 
will okay. will raise taxes for middle class people, but those same people will pay less overall in medical expenses. But when she was pressed in this debate on won't your plan raise taxes, she doesn't say that it will. We Don't you think she should be as honest as Bernie is about this? Well, I'm not going to, you know, look, if she's not going to agree with what Bernie is saying, right, if, she's not, if Warren is not going to agree with what Sanders is saying, then she needs to have a better explanation yeah. for why. Yeah. So it's, you know, look, I've covered health care debates for, you know, since you were a young man. <laughs> um, and, and I can tell you, uh, there, are, there are many, many different plans, many, many different approaches, and frankly, many different funding mechanisms, right? Uh, and if Warren wants to say that she, for a single-payer plan, it gets rid of the insurance companies, but she's got a different idea for how to fund it. And you know, maybe she can... Maybe it's, you know, we, we cut the defense budget by 20%, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's fine. But she's got to have it. And she didn't seem really to have it there. She was just saying, you know, somehow we're going to make this all come together. And she got pressed on the issue. It didn't look great. And there were a number of other places where this happened. Intriguingly enough, very early in the debate, uh, when Andrew Yang... Uh, and she were sort of going at back and forth on the question of automation. And Warren seemed to be uh, dismissive of automation, you know, and you know, basically the changes in a, in a robotified, uh, radically altering uh, economic zone, right? You know, the future is coming at us, and it's coming at us pretty fast. Let me just and interrupt and say, John Nichols has a book about this. It's called People Get Ready, and it tells you a whole lot that you need to know about automation. Yeah, so it makes a fine holiday gift. <laughs> and um, But <laughs> at the expense of that, uh, and frankly, I don't think Andrew Yang is the most effective advocate for his ideas. Yeah. Um, but with that said, the point he was making was credible, and it, it's important. And Warren did not seem to be taking the issue all that seriously. She kind of defaulted again to her plans on uh, monopoly and on, on the tech companies, which is a legitimate thing to talk about. But uh, it, it was an odd circumstance where Yang was pressing his point. Uh, he supporting a, a universal basic income, uh, a lot of other responses to automation. Again, whether you agree with them or not, you know, putting them on the line. Warren very sort of dismissive of this, going other directions altogether. And he had this bizarre circumstance where Joe Biden, the last person I would have expected to pull all the pieces together, steps up and says, you know, truthfully, there's a, both of these people are saying some important things here. What we ought to recognize is that um, – we do have to address monopoly and wages and all these issues, but we have to also know that these changes that are taking place are a big deal, and and they are a part of you know shaping the next economy. I'm paraphrasing there, but it, that should have been Warren's answer. Yeah, and so I think that you have several of those points where, again, this is not to trash on her per se. It is to suggest that if you watch debates seriously, 
what you what you recognize is that in one debate you will see vulnerabilities or openings that will then be exploited in the next debate. My sense is that Elizabeth Warren came through this debate pretty pretty comfortably. That ultimately, for all the you know storm and drang about stuff, uh, I suspect that she'll continue uh, her relatively strong progression uh, in this race. But um, she really, she and her campaign really need to take a serious look at this because um, there were points at which. Uh, the moderators and the other candidates maybe did not exploit the vulnerabilities fully, but they they will be prepared for the next debate. So that's it's just a, it's a it's a bit of a cautionary tale. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm still sort of puzzled by uh, what Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar <laughs> have in mind here. They were especially aggressive in attacking the progressives. Each is apparently hoping to replace Biden as the most valuable, let's call them Wall Street candidates. Uh, and indeed, Mayor Pete does have a truckload of money from Wall Street, but I don't quite see daylight for either of them here. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think they're up to? So, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg is in a very interesting place in the polls. Uh, he is generally fourth place. Um, he, most of the polls still, and I'm talking about primary states uh, and caucus states, which is really where this thing gets decided. Yeah. You know, you've got Biden and Warren up toward the top, uh, Warren rising in a lot of polls. Uh, Sanders in the double digits. You know, he, he's not quite there, although in some states very competitive, but others not so much. But, you know, He's, he's solidly in this sort of top three. And then Buttigieg is just below that. He's in the single digits generally, but sort of trying to get up. It's very, very clear that uh, what Buttigieg, and I talk about him a little more than Klobuchar because Klobuchar is much further down in the polls. Yeah. That Buttigieg recognizes a reality that's not spoken too often, but it's an important one. Uh, and that is that... Um, Bernie Sanders' supporters are solidly with him, probably after last night, even more, maybe a little more solidly with him. And, and he maybe has a little bit of room for growth, uh, perhaps not taking from other candidates, but uh, energizing young voters, especially, I think, with an AOC endorsement, uh, or at least that's a factor in it. Um, and Biden's voters, if you look at the polling data, there's not a lot of evidence that they're going to go to Buttigieg, right? Right. That's so the big puzzle. Does, yeah. So where does Buttigieg go? Yeah. Hard against Warren. He's trying to loosen up some of that Warren support, and then also, almost bizarrely, hard against Beto O'Rourke, because O'Rourke is a place where, you know, 2 or 3% is, is parked. Buttigieg really, in my mind, looked sort of like he was desperately trying to break loose support by going after other candidates in a very aggressive way. You know, he's tried to present a nice guy image, but uh, if you listen back to the tape on some of those exchanges, especially with Beto O'Rourke, it was pretty rough. It was edgy. Yeah, it was. And now Klobuchar is a different game altogether. Klobuchar, much more closer to your question, she really does want to be 
you know, the, the sort of fallback. She wants to stay in the race long enough that if Biden stumbles, that she's a very logical fallback. But she failed last night in presenting her argument in the way that she should have. What she should have done, I would argue, is from the very beginning say, you know, look, um, I'm from the upper Midwest. I'm from a region of battleground states. Uh, I have won in places like, you know, places that aren't so different from Ohio or Michigan. And I win in Minnesota. It's a, it's a relatively democratic state, but, but it's been competitive over the years, and I've done very, very well there. I do it this way. And, uh, and I happen to be a woman as well, and a woman should be our nominee. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and she could, if she framed it right um, and delivered it and just kept coming back to that message— I think it would be powerful, but I don't think she necessarily advances herself by, you know, trying to chip away at the other candidates. I, I think for her, um, she needed a different strategy, and so I may be wrong. Uh, I think she had a good night. I think she delivered some great lines, but I would be a little surprised if she moves much in the way of poll numbers. Last question. What the, we all agree that this was a terrible format and that the uh, moderators were way too aggressive in interrupting things. What kind of format would you like to see in future debates? Single issue. I want to see debates about great big issues um, rather than this chaotic, you know, jumping around trying to you know, cover a lot of ground, but unfortunately going back and covering ground you've already covered. It was bizarre to me that at the, a point when the candidates were really getting into a deep, relatively smart debate about impeachment early on, suddenly they say, okay, we're going to close this off and go back to asking you the same questions we asked in the previous three rounds of debates about funding Medicare for all, right? Yeah. Um, it, was, it, it was just terrible. It ill thought, you know, almost, you know, ten year kind of situation. Um and uh and so I would argue that the better approach is to say this next debate is about climate change. Yeah. Everything it touches, everything that, that matters. And yeah, we could talk about a Green New Deal. We can talk about, you know, the next economy. We could talk about all of these issues. Um, but that's going to be the debate. And the next one, in my opinion, war and peace, mm -hmm. right? Because if there are two things that, that, that are really existential threats, right, um, you know, it's the climate, but it's also the fact that we live in a nuclear age where, you know, these are real issues. And then, you know, we've got a lot of debates to come, John. Yeah, how many, how, reform. how many are we? No, economics. How many are scheduled and how many candidates should be in these debates? Well, I'm always cautious about trying to push. I, I can't, John, there's a lot more scheduled, and frankly, they, it's sort of, the truth is they always lie about it. Uh. Um, it's, they come every month, and then they'll speed up a little bit. Uh, but when I say they lie about it, it is the debates peter out at a point where you've got a clear nominee. Yeah. If the fight goes on into June, you'll have debates into June and, you know, wherever the last battleground states are. Um, but I, I'm always cautious about pushing people off the stage. I, I don't, I think it's better to have focused debates with 8, 10, 12 people even, um, the way to do it is better to be better focused on issues than to say, oh, you shouldn't be there. But I can tell you that if they're going to continue with the kind of debates that they do 
these sort of standard issue debates. Um, boy, I think when you get beyond, you know, five or six people, uh, it gets really hard. Yeah. And it was hard last night because yeah. if you were to give a measure of fairness, which they should, moderators should be fair, if you were to give a measure of fairness, um, you're just kind of constantly interrupting and, and preventing people from going deep uh, at points when, you know, the only thing I want from a debate at this point is for people to go deep. <laughs> I want to hear more from them. Yeah. I want them to, to do stuff. And uh, I will just tell you, I think that the CNN-New York Times debate uh, was, to my view, a failure. And it was a failure because if you've got time for a question about Ellen DeGeneres sitting next to George W. Bush <laughs> oh, at a man. sports event, oh, man. but you don't have time for a question about climate change, yeah. That's not a winning debate. One last thing, uh, the polls, the Fox News poll, which gets an A rating uh, from Nate Silver and which is driving Trump crazy right now, says this mm -hmm. is a week ago among registered voters. Warren would beat Trump by 10 points. Biden would beat Trump by 10. Bernie would beat Trump by 9. So whatever happens, Trump looks very much like a loser, at least at this point, you know, more than a year before Election Day. Uh, your concluding thoughts on uh, where we stand at this point? Well, it looks like that. And, you know, it's, it, it also looks like the president will be impeached, but perhaps not removed from office. since He'll be running with the burden of being the first president in history to seek re-election as an impeached president, mm -hmm. um, and which I think is a, a very big deal, way yeah. underestimated in its, in its burden to him. But the bottom line is this. All evidence is, no matter where you're at politically or ideologically, that the Democrats can, can follow their heart. They don't need to be so, uh, you know, sort of pundity or poll-obsessed. They can back who they love or who they, who they value or who they, they, they want because the likelihood is that if they nominate a competent candidate, and I would argue that a lot of these candidates are quite competent, um, that you know, they're likely to, <laughs> their nominee is very likely to be the president of the United States. And yeah. So less punditry, more, uh, more heart and soul. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Great pleasure. Coming up, the Supremes are back. When Trump Watch continues. Same old story back again. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. The new Supreme Court term began this week. For comment, we turn to Eli Mistal. He's executive editor of Above the Law, as well as the legal director of WNYC's More Perfect. And he's a contributing writer for The Nation. Eli Mistal, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. Well, Brett Kavanaugh, of course, was confirmed at the start of last year's court term. So we've already seen the new conservative majority in action. Do you expect the court? this term to be any worse than it was last term? 
I expect it to be entirely worse. And part of the reason is because we haven't actually seen it yet. We haven't seen the new conservative majority in action. We have not seen the fully operational battle station that is the arch-conservative majority. The key issue here is that Kavanaugh last year was fundamentally part of the ruling party on cases that the court already had decided to take with Anthony Kennedy on the bench. Now, Kennedy, we can all talk about Kennedy, but he was certainly more of a moderate centrist voice. The important thing to understand is that the way a Supreme Court, the Supreme Court gets cases, you know, something like 7,000 cases are appealed to the Supreme Court every year, and they only take about 100 of them. And the way that they take them is this process of granting, of, of agreeing to hear the case called granting cert, um, and that process only requires four justices to want to hear the case, not five. So with Kennedy on the court, Clarence Thomas, uh, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch kind of only had three votes to take the most arch-conservative cases. Kennedy wasn't on board. And for the most part, Roberts you know, kind of doesn't want to kick the hornet's nest if he doesn't have to, right? Now, with Kavanaugh been, having been there for a year, that means that he has been the fourth vote to hear a lot of the conservative cases that will be coming up before him this year. And when you look at the docket as they've laid it out, the things that they've already decided to look at, it really does, does appear um, that the court is going to be kind of fully metastasized with this kind of Republican agenda. And we're going to start seeing the effects of it this year. Okay, let's run down the big cases on the Supreme Court's docket this term. There's an abortion rights case. It centers on a Louisiana law that requires that doctors who provide abortion services also have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. This sounds very familiar. Didn't they already decide that this was unconstitutional? Indeed, you are right. It does. It sounds familiar because it is familiar. Because in 2016, the court struck down almost this identical law um, as it applied in Texas. It was a Texas law trying to limit uh, abortion doctors to those who have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. We call these laws trap laws. They're targeted laws uh, meant to restrict access to abortion without going after abortion kind of frontally. And in 2016, in a case called uh, Whole Woman's Health Services, the Supreme Court, by a 5-3 majority, struck that law down. The difference between 2016 and 2019 is that Anthony Kennedy, who was the fifth vote to strike down that law in 2016, has been replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, and Anthony Scalia has been replaced not by Merrick Garland, but by uh, Neil Gorsuch. So with those two extra conservatives now, it is likely that the conservatives have the five votes necessary to uphold this trap law, even though they just struck it down, which flies in the face of any kind of protestation that the Supreme Court, or Brett Kavanaugh specifically, cares one whit about precedent. They don't care about precedent. They care about enforcing the Republican agenda. Part of the Republican agenda is these trap laws, and I think it's very likely that the Supreme Court will decide to affirm this Louisiana law that is nearly identical to the Texas law they struck down a few years earlier. The only kind of ray of hope here is that John Roberts, who voted to uphold the law in 2016, um, he was part of the dissenting minority in 2016, 
the only hope here is that he changes his legal opinion, um, not because he suddenly thinks that these laws are, are less constitutional than before, but because he respects Supreme Court precedent as an institution. Um, but that's not particularly likely. Also on the docket, there's a big gay rights case. People who say they were fired from their jobs because they were gay or, in one case, transgender. This seems to be unconstitutional under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which ended employment discrimination in 1964, or did it? Right, right, right. I mean, look, how do you end racism? You can't just go into everybody's hearts and minds and say, stop being racist today, right? That's not how it works. What we try to do, what we try to do legally, is that we give people an opportunity to sue their employers or sue somebody who has denied them an opportunity on issues of race or gender inequality, right? What Title VII the Civil Rights Act does is make it a, a federal issue um, and a federal crime to fire somebody from a protected class, you know, uh, the uh, ethnicity would count, race would count, gender would count, to fire somebody from a protected class from their employment. Now, when the act was written in 1964, it says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex as well as, you know, bubble, all these other things, right? There is some, uh, I guess, debate as to whether or not sex, as it's written in that statute, includes members of the LGBT community or not. Now, conservatives will argue that it, A, doesn't, because it doesn't explicitly say sexual orientation, and B, they will argue that the writers of the 1964 Civil Rights Act did not intend to protect gays and lesbians when they were writing that act. They're probably right that it wasn't intended to protect gays and lesbians. I mean, this is we're talking about people who, at the time in 1964, were still busy criminalizing homosexual conduct um, in some situations. So they probably didn't believe that gays and lesbians should be protected. And I don't give a damn what they thought in 1964. Because one of the things that, that, that we have seen, that we have had in this country for the past 20 or so years, is that we have interpreted at the federal level, at the Supreme Court level, um, the Civil Rights Act to include protections for gays and lesbians. This makes all of the sense in the world. If I say that you, if I tell my male employee, you can have sex with a woman, but I tell my female employee, you cannot have sex with a woman, well then guess what? I am discriminating against my female employee on the basis of her sex. That point and click should be enough to include gays and lesbians and transgendered people into the protections of the Civil Rights Act. But, you know, conservatives have five votes. They have the power, and they will probably interpret the Civil Rights Act as dully as possible. One thing that we have to remember, and, I, and I've been telling people this a lot as we talk about the case, if the court strikes down LGBTQ protections over the course of this case, the very next thing that needs to happen is that Congress needs to reinstall those protections into the Civil Rights Act via legislation. The Supreme Court will not say it is unconstitutional to protect gays and lesbians. They will say that the Civil Rights Act wasn't written to apply to them, so we can just write the Civil Rights Act to apply to them. Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats, they have already passed a bill called the Equality Act that specifically would reinsert 
sorry, explicitly insert gays and lesbians into the protections and transgender people into the protections of the Civil Rights Act. That bill is, like so many things, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk right now, and he refuses to bring it up for a vote. The court this term will also take up DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. The question here is whether Trump needs a good reason to cancel the program. I say he does. What do you think the court majority will say? Yeah, this is uh, this is a little bit interesting because there's almost no reason for this case to be here other than to put John Roberts in a bad spot. Like, there's no... <laughs> There's no good reason for the case to be here. There was one decision at the Ninth Circuit level saying that Trump can end DACA for no reason. Okay. But there were two other cases going on at the D.C. Circuit and the Second Circuit about the same issue. The court, usually under normal circumstances, would wait for all of those cases to go through the system um, before taking the case and making a final ruling, and then B, on just a kind of raw political kind of sensibility issue, we're about to have an election, right? This DACA issue might well resolve itself through the normal political process of either electing a new president or electing a new Congress that is capable of passing comprehensive immigration reform, right? So we don't actually need the court to be involved here. But like I said, it only takes four votes, not five, for the court to make a case, and the arch-conservative bloc, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, want this kind of rubber stamping of the president's, what I would call, kind of unhinged bigotry towards uh, Mexicans. There is no legally valid reason for this program to end. And I say legally valid, that's an important distinction. I'm not saying that the president doesn't have the power to end DACA. He does, right? It was an executive order by Obama. It can be undone by an executive order. But undoing a law or doing a law, even through executive action, we have this thing called, we have a standard of review called arbitrary and capricious. And all that means is that a official who makes a rule has to have a valid reason for making the rule. It can't be a whim. It can't be because you saw something on Fox News last night and you want to change the entire legal structure of the country. That's just not how it's allowed to work. And so the challenge for Trump right now is that he has to get his lawyers to get up in court and explain a reason for ending DACA that isn't just about cruelty and bigotry. And so far, they have been unable to do that. But this is the same court that allowed his wall funding stealing injunction to go forward, even though he didn't have a reason. They allowed his Muslim ban to go forward, even though he didn't have a good reason. And they allowed his massive change to the asylum rules to go forward, even though he had no good, non-bigoted reason for, ending the per for changing those laws. So I don't have a ton of confidence in the court right now to stand up to Donald Trump. Um, but... Roberts is Roberts is uncomfortable with this issue. Um, you saw him go against the Trump in the, uh, Trump in the census um, case. That was whether or not they could add a citizenship question to the census. Um, so Roberts is the person to watch here. I don't know how he'll go, and I don't have a lot of confidence, but he could always choose this moment uh, to stand up to President Trump's um, ridiculousness when it comes to this, these kinds of rules. Arbitrary and capricious, as you say, is the standard of judicial review in this case. However, Trump's lawyers will say 
that the court needs to treat the executive branch with maximum deference. I hate maximum deference to the executive branch, but that's an argument that usually works. Look, and I, I'm, I'm agreeing with those lawyers. lawyers that in, in, in a review such as this, the court should treat the executive branch with maximum deference. I totally agree with that. Where I disagree, maximum deference still contemplates not being deferential, right? Like you, still, <laughs> like you wouldn't have to say maximum deference if there wasn't still a little bit of non-deference that you were holding on to, right? Arbitrary and capricious is an exceedingly low standard. Most presidents and most executive agencies are able to clear the hurdle easily, and that's because they don't need a good reason. They just need a valid one. Like I, I, I could, I could say I am, I am opening my uh, door uh, because I am not afraid of criminals. All right, that might not be a great reason, but it's a valid one. I can't say I'm opening my door because I'm trying to heat the whole neighborhood. Like that's that that just doesn't that's not true. That's not that's not possible. And so that that's really the difference and that's that's the level of deference that we're talking about. If Trump had any reason for ending this program other than Mexicans are criminal and rape criminals and rapists, he would be able to end the program. But so far, his best argument is, I don't need a reason at all, which is not a reason. Um, when Obama did it, it was illegal, so we're fixing it, which is not a reason because the Republicans already tried to make DACA under Obama illegal and failed. So the court has already ruled that DACA is not illegal. So fixing it because it's illegal, it's not a good reason because it's not illegal. And then the third reason that they kind of throw out there is that DACA encourages uh, women uh, to, to immigrate to the country, which would be a valid reason if he was had you know, one shred of evidence that that is such. Unfortunately for him, the government has not been able to provide one shred of evidence that DACA does the bad things that Trump claims it does. So that's why we're here, man. It, it's... it's it's frustrating because, because, again, because the bar is so low. There was a report about a year ago. I, I, I'm sure you can, can find it if you guys Google. Um, there was a report about a year ago in the Washington Post um, that talked about how Donald Trump has lost in court more than any modern president. Like it's, it's like some kind of record level of, of judicial ineffectiveness on the part of the Trump administration. And... It is because they consistently fail to make valid legal arguments. They do not know, potentially, what a valid legal argument is even supposed to sound like. So again and again and again, they keep running into this problem where the courts are generally happy to let the president do what he wants as long as what he wants is backed up by any evidence or any fact or any shred of truth, and Trump consistently is unable to provide that. Ellie Mistal wrote about the new Supreme Court term for the nation. Read him at thenation.com. Ellie, thanks very much. I hope we can come back to you as cases are argued and decided in the coming months. I'm happy to come on your show and cry. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, John. Same old story back again. 
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. This week, who's helping Dad fight impeachment? For comment, we turn to the head of Ivanka Watch, Amy Willens. She was a Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, let's start with the Trump kids' tweets in the last week. What do they tell us about what everybody is doing to help their dad avoid being convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors and removed from office? Start with number one, Don Jr. Don Jr. seems to be attacking Adam Schiff and uh, questioning the sincerity of the impeachment process. And he's also uh, still on the case of... AOC, of course, one of his favorite uh, whipping girls, and another favorite whipping girl, Greta Thunberg. Um, He's been retweeting stuff about how uh, she has mental illness problems and is OCD and all this uh, right-wing attack on the kids' climate change uh, speeches. And the younger brother, Eric, what is he tweeting about? So Eric has been making the media rounds, especially on Fox News, of course, on the case of the Bidens and their corruption, and Hunter Biden in particular, because it takes a son to know a son. Jared. Jared doesn't tweet, but Jared is in the news. Jared has a new position. He's like the man of all positions, minister without portfolio. He's now supposedly the head of the impeachment war room in the White House, along with uh, Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney. You've been Listening to CNN, the New York Times says there is no impeachment war room. It's just the usual arrangement at the executive office. The chief of staff is in charge and... And And there's Jared. He's available. What the heck? He didn't quite make peace in the Middle East, so that's not that pressing right now with the Israeli election brouhaha. So now it's time for him to deal as well with the impeachment process as he has with the warring factions in the Middle East. And finally, Ivanka. What is Ivanka's role in fighting impeachment? She's not really talking about the impeachment process at all on Twitter that we see. It's like it's not even happening in Ivanka world. She never mentions the I word. She carries on business as usual. And what is business as usual for Ivanka? Since she gave up her actual fashion brand, her business in the White House has been empowering women's uh, economic futures, doing business for women's business. And Ivanka's big news in the last week is that she went to Texas for an event at Google. Yeah, it's not really what you always expect the Trump people to be doing, going to Google in Texas. But she went to Google because there's this thing that she's been working on for a year called the Pledge to America's Workers. And Google has signed on to this um, to help train American workers to work in IT, to be tech savvy. They've got something like uh, 300 giant commitments from various people to help retrain America's workers. But Those are commitments. I don't know what a commitment really is to something called Pledge to America's Workers. Sounds a little like the Pledge Allegiance, doesn't it? (laughs) You pledge, but really, are you you really there with us? 
And before she went to Texas, she went on a big Latin American trip. She was greeted like a head of state everywhere she went. And there are, of course, reasons for that. She went to banquets. She went to uh, very fancy luncheons with heads of state in uh, Paraguay, Argentina, Colombia. Uh, And she did some work in Venezuela, too, which we can talk about on the border. They greet her like a head of state because she's the daughter of a head of state. So what are they going to do? But she has a program there that she's working on called Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. It's got microfinancing in it. It has um, aid projects for various women's empowerment. It's, it's really interesting to me because it's just like all the things Ivanka does for women. It doesn't consider health care. It doesn't consider reproductive care and management. And it also does not make a mention of domestic violence, which is a gigantic problem in Latin America. But none of that is mentioned because it's not about caring for women. It's supposedly about getting more money for women's projects. Also, it's a little disturbing to see her going on a women's empowerment program in Latin America when she is inside an administration that won't even allow the word abortion to be pronounced by any institution that it funds. If you use this word, the A word, you will have your funding cut off by the United States government around the world. So, and there she is. She, too, is not mentioning it. Maybe she's afraid Trump will cut off her uh, allowance. She uses this uh, Latin America project also for her own benefit. She likes to appear in photographs with indigenous peoples looking happy in her designer clothing. Then there's one great picture of her dancing with um, a Paraguayan-seeming market lady. Um, But if you look at the picture closely, you'll see, yes, she has her arm around the little Paraguayan lady, and the lady has her arm around Ivanka. But in the background, there's no one except staff people, security people, and like USAID functionaries. Just look at the picture closely. Ivanka does have one other job helping raise money from rich people. There was just a meeting of 120 top donors in Jackson Hole. What is Ivanka's role at these events? This is um, a new plan to raise money for the Trump campaign with traditional Republican donors who haven't loved the Trumps that much and aren't really their natural base, but do have a lot of money to contribute. And Ivanka's role is to be a star and to be a celebrity and tell inside stories about the family and funny stories about Donald. And at this donor meeting, she said a very interesting thing. They asked her what she had gotten from her parents. And she said, well, from my mom, I learned how to be a successful businesswoman, a successful woman in the world. And from my dad, I got my moral compass. She got her moral compass. From Donald Trump. I wouldn't give her money for that. <laughs> I looked into it a little bit. Apparently, it's a, it's a talking point. She often says that she got her moral or ethical compass from Donald Trump. Perhaps not the greatest thing to be saying right now. Let's go back two years ago when Ivanka and Jared first went to the White House. You and I on this podcast talked about them being a moderating influence that would temper the worst instincts of her father, 
uh, and gently guide him onto the path of the New York moderate, centrist, socially liberal people that they are. Is there any evidence that she has succeeded at this or even that she has tried to do this? There have been little shreds of evidence here and there that she's tried. Uh, but I think that he's gone beyond that now. He's not a person to be reasoned with right now. And I don't think that she wants to go there. She wants him to love her and care about her and take her seriously. And if she tries to correct him, he's not a man who's going to be corrected. We see that now. We see that he is beyond correction. Recently, she said, my father has never listened to me about anything. And this strikes a chord with many women whose fathers never listened to them about anything. The idea that we ever thought that a man like Donald Trump was going to listen to a woman about anything, it's just, I, I don't know what we were thinking, John. Finally, there's still talk that Ivanka seems to think she could be the first woman president. This was reported by Michael Wolf in Fire and Fury. I think there is a chance that she believes that's a possibility. Look, her father is very popular. 60 million Americans voted for that man. More might vote for him the next time. He's done such a terrific job. So if he leaves her this fabulous legacy with, if I may say so, John, on this program, real America, she could be the first woman president. How about that, John? Can I say that on this podcast? <laughs> The other news on the Ivanka watch front is that New York Magazine has launched an all-Ivanka podcast. It's hosted by Vanessa Gregoriadis. It costs money. You have to pay $7.99 a month to Luminary, unlike the 10,000 other political podcasts, which are free. I know you've listened to some of this. What's it called? Tabloid, The Making of Ivanka Trump. It's not a current events thing. It's like a biography thing. What's the new Ivanka podcast on Luminary Life? Well, it's sort of cultural criticism of Ivanka with Ivanka at the center. And one of the things I'm really interested in is young Ivanka versus Ivanka now, although she's still young. But she used to be a brown-haired young girl who went to lots of parties and went to really fancy boarding schools where actually Trump girl world is not considered the coolest thing you can be. To be a, a sort of playboy model is not the height of what Choate and Chapin and Brearley girls think is uh, what they should be working for. But there was clearly a moment in Ivanka where she said to herself, I'm not going to be the girl my schools would make me into. I'm going to go model while I'm a Choate. I'm going to dye my hair back to the blonde it was when I was little and daddy loved to stroke my head. And I'm not going to wear, you know, real woman clothes. My brand is not going to be real working women clothes. And I'm going to wear, you know, sexy clothes that daddy would love. And I think what's really interesting about this is this is a thing that will actually, if she ever runs for president, would make her more palatable to the Trump base than if she walked around like Jackie Kennedy in, you know, fancy designer clothing. I think it's, it's, I don't think it's a calculated move. It's a move made because of her love for her father. It's an unusual calculation to be a sex pot, sort of, and be maybe a candidate for high office. 
Let's say that Hillary didn't do that. Let's also point out Elizabeth Warren doesn't do that. And they're making one calculation, which is a woman should not be sexy. She should be more in the male world, able to deal with high-power things. But Ivanka is thinking about popularity. And, you know, you wouldn't say her father really should be in the world of political uh, operatives and candidates, but he does it with his blonde tuft and his ridiculousness. And she's making, maybe making, or at least is living up to another calculation, uh, one of whose foremothers is Sarah Palin, who, although she wore pants a lot and stuff, dressed sexy. Amy Willens, the head of Ivanka Watch. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks very much, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 